Good morning, friends. Let's try again. Kids, good morning. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, I know. This, this is going to be an adventure, and I love adventures, so this is great. Um, I do feel like I need to thank uh, the uh, the wonderful cast of characters that was up here. MJ, you are a wonderful narrator. Um, Jake, where'd you go? You're a great John. Oh, he's, he's peaked. He's already left the building. He's like, this is, it doesn't get any better than this. I heard that uh, when John Seth was asked to be Jesus, he promised not to get a Messiah complex. So, Melinda, if you could please keep him in check for us and report back, that'd be great. But thank you for bringing that story to life. I feel like, you know, I should just say amen and let's go. But uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series in which we are walking through the places that Jesus himself walked. We are following in his footsteps. And today we are visiting the place where he was baptized. This pivotal and powerful moment in his life that he invites us to experience in our lives as well as we respond to his great love and his great grace at work in our own lives. Now, um, last week at our Melrose campus, we had a baptism. We had someone who, who experienced this in their life. This is Briley. She's the daughter of Ellen, um, who is our traditional worship leader over at the Melrose campus. And it was a, a beautiful, beautiful moment in her life. But something else beautiful happened immediately after that, kind of like in the story of Jesus, something pretty powerful happened. After she was baptized, you can see her wet feet leading out of the room and leading to the cross, which I think is just this wonderful reminder of what our faith is truly all about, right? Our faith is not us passing some test. Our faith is not about us getting all the right answers down pat. It's not about us keeping all the rules perfectly. Perfectly, but rather it is about literally walking behind Jesus, following him where he has gone. Now, of course, when Jesus was baptized, uh, well, there wasn't this, yeah. And there wasn't necessarily fancy baptismals. There wasn't even a cow trough like what we use out in the Welcome Center when we do baptisms. No, Jesus was baptized in living water. He was baptized in a river. Kids, how many of you have ever gone to a river? Yeah, yeah. Rivers, are they like nice and clean and pretty always? No. They're a little murky, right? And are they like warm like a bubble bath? No, they're usually kind of cold. In fact, during the pandemic, um, I was asked to baptize someone in the river. But guess what? It was December. And do you all know how cold that water was? They got me waders. Have you all ever worn waders? And I went out there, but it didn't help. It was still really cold. But those were some brave kids. They wanted to do it anyway. But um, rivers are, are special because what rivers do is they help bring life. In fact, if you think about Bowling Green, this place where we live, water, a river, is really what brought people here. Kids, do you all know which river is here? No. No? Anybody? Lincoln. Thank you, Lincoln. Lincoln's kind of obsessed with rivers. He knows. The Barren River is here. No, I'm not, he says. And so the Barren River not only provided water for the people to survive with and to water the crops and let the area thrive, but it was also a means of transportation. That was how people got here and how supplies got here and allowed this community to thrive. And the same is true um, across all of time. Water, rivers, has been what has brought life to people and to places. In fact, if you go all 
the way back to the very beginning of time when God created that beautiful garden, the garden of, does anybody remember its name? Garden of Eden. Good job. Um, The garden of Eden. Guess what was there? A river. And not just one river, y'all. There was four rivers that all flowed into that spot. Um, if, if you think about that place where it was good through and through, that was flourishing and fruitful, that place where there was food that was good for the eye and, and tasted delicious, rivers helped bring that life. And so that's at the beginning of the Bible. And then if you go all the way to the end of Scripture, does anybody know the last book of the Bible? Yes. Good job, Revelation. And you get to like the last chapter of Revelation where it's describing the new creation. What the world is going to look like when God sets all things right. Guess what is there? A river, right? This is what it says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of this great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. At the beginning and at the end of the story of God, there is a river, a river that brings life to God. God's people. But in between, there is this other river that comes up again and again and again in the story of Scripture. And it is the Jordan River. I'm going to show you all a map. We looked at this last week, if you were here. You can see circled in red Bethlehem. That's where we started. Um, my mother-in-law came back today only because I agreed we weren't going to sing Christmas carols. If you were here last week, you got to enjoy that. Uh, no Christmas carols today. Uh, but you can see over to the east of Bethlehem is the Jordan River. Um, it's pretty easy to see on this map, even if I wouldn't have put a big blue box around it, because guess what? It is the only major river that runs in Israel. And so that makes it pretty important. It's the source of fresh water that is there. But you can see that it flows um, through the Sea of Galilee, which is beautiful and serene. And it grow, It also flows um, through the Dead Sea, which is actually shrinking. Did y'all know that that could happen? Like these big seas can shrink over time. It's actually shrinking. Um, but um, it, it, it's pretty long, I guess. It, it doesn't make a straight line. It kind of curves and twists. And so it's about 223 miles uh, long. And it has the lowest elevation, which means it's the lowest place, the lowest river on earth. And it actually leads to the place that is the lowest point on earth. The Dead Sea is actually the lowest point on earth. It's 1,410 feet below sea level, which is pretty low, right? Now, I'll be honest. When you see the Jordan River, you guys, it doesn't look like much in places. In places, it just looks like a creek you might find in your backyard. Um, This is what the Jordan River looked like when our team crossed over from uh, the West Bank into Jordan. Uh, or I guess we were in Israel at that point. We weren't at the West Bank. Uh, Israel into Jordan. Um, it took us like six seconds to get across it, so not that big there. Does it look crystal clear? No, it looks kind of muddy, doesn't it? Uh, but despite the fact that it's not that big, despite the fact that it's not the prettiest river that you've ever seen, it is a place that is of great importance. It's of critical importance to the, the people that live there in that place, not only 
only because it's the place that gives them their only fresh water, but it also is very spiritually important to them because all kinds of amazing stuff had happened there in the history of God's people. In fact, time and time again, when there was this big change that was about to happen, this big transition that was going to take place, it actually happened there at the Jordan. Uh, for example, it was there that Moses, do y'all know Moses? Anybody tell me something about Moses? What did he do? <laughs> Never mind. Anybody? He was, he was old. Is that what I heard? <laughs> what? He was a man. He led God's people out of Egypt to the very edge of the promised land. And so that was at the Jordan. And it was there on, on a, a mountain that overlooked the Jordan that he transitioned, that he went from being the leader of God's people to going to heaven, to, to live with God forever. And it was there that the new leader after him was kind of installed, that he was brought in. His name was Joshua. And Joshua became God's leader of his people. And he led them across the Jordan from the dusty and dry and desolate desert into the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. Who likes honey? It's good, right? Where does honey come from? Bees. Bees. That's what we always think, right? Um, I thought that. I was sitting there on the bus during our, our tour of the Holy Land, and I thought, you know what? Nobody's mentioned bees. Where does all this honey come from that they talk about in the Bible? And then it was like almost on cue. Within a few hours, our tour host had just kind of volunteered that a lot of the honey, especially back then, doesn't actually come from bees. It comes from dates. You, you get the honey from crushing them. Um, I didn't know that. Did y'all know that? I didn't know that. So good. I'm not alone. That's always good. But anyway, that's where that transition happened. There was a new leader and they took, they transitioned from one place to another. It was also there that there was this great prophet named Elijah and God came and he like took him up into heaven in a whirlwind. And right there at the Jordan river, a new prophet was appointed and his name was Elisha. He became the next great prophet of the Lord. And so like you can keep going through scripture time and time again when change happens this is where it happens transition after transition has taken place there at the Jordan and again and again new life flows into the life of God's people in this location and so it makes sense that at this other key moment when change needs to happen when transition is about to take place that the place where this has happened time and time and time again in the past when God's people have needed new life that it would happen at the Jordan in the same place where it had happened before. And so in that very same spot where there have been these great prophets named Elijah and Elisha, there's a new prophet that comes to God's people. And his name is, what was it? Not Jake, but John. John comes onto the scene and he's telling people, guess what? This kingdom of God that you've been waiting for, it is here. It is near. And as he's saying this, you know, people are, are looking at him and they're discovering that he is indeed quite a character. Um, it's interesting, uh, grown-ups, to look at how he's uh, depicted in art. This is how da Vinci depicted him, which he looks very angelic here, right? But a bit mischievous at the same time. I think some of these other artists got John a little better. You know, he looks a little more like a wild man. Not that you look like a wild man, Jake. But, you know, with the beard and the straggly hair and... Uh, 
they seem a little bit more appropriate. But he was this interesting fella who had um, a weird sense of fashion and just this interesting taste in snacks. Um, but, he, but he started attracting all of this attention. All this attention that was bringing people out to see him from Jerusalem and Judea and from all across the land. And you have to wonder, why do they come out and see him? I mean, it's kind of a ways. You've got to want to go there to go see him. Maybe they come out of curiosity, like, does he really wear camel hair and leather like I need to see for myself? Or maybe they came out of a sense of, uh, out of a sense of skepticism, like they're thinking, you know, this guy is saying like he's God's prophet and that God's kingdom's near, like whatever. Who is this guy? Let's go out and see who he is. Or maybe they go out because they're excited. Maybe they've been waiting for God's kingdom to arrive and they want to be first in line. They want to be there. However, no matter what their motivations were for going out to see John, whenever they got there, the thing that is clear is that people responded to him. They were listening to what he said. They started confessing their sins and being baptized, going down in the water and saying goodbye to living life their way and rising to start going in God's direction. They were repenting in preparation for however God was about to show up. But God was about to show up in a way that was quite unexpected. He was about to show up in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. And not just in some general way, but to that very location where John was baptizing people. This is where scholars believe that this interaction between John and Jesus took place. Um, the, there was an earthquake that shifted like how the, the river flows evidently. So it's not the exact location, but it's close. Um, you can see there um, that um, you have two banks. On one side of the bank, you're, you're in the West Bank. You're in Palestinian territory. On the other side, you are in the nation of Jordan. And so they have this very high security method to make sure that you don't cross over from one nation to another. It's a rope that's out there <laughs> that I think anyone could swim under. Uh, but um, you, you are that close to Jordan when you're standing there in that place. Uh, while we were there, um, when you go down to the Jordan, they have this scripture that we're talking about on the wall and mosaics in all kinds of different languages. And then when you get there, you are invited to, to go into the water and to remember your baptism or celebrate your baptism. Um, um, I had the opportunity to do that with my mom and my dad and uh, with others that were a part of our, our group. I had the opportunity um, to m- remember my baptism myself. Um, Pastor Adam um, helped me remember my own. And it was this very beautiful moment to know like we're standing in this same place where Jesus and John did. But as moving as that moment was for me, On that day when Jesus goes into the Jordan, like what we need to understand is that everything was about to change in history from that point forward. At that moment when he is getting into the Jordan, this transition is about to take place. And it is gigantic, so gigantic, so seismic that it is going to bring new life to all of creation. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been quietly living out his life in Nazareth. He is the son of a carpenter. He's helping his dad in his trade. He's a no one from nowhere. But whenever Jesus is baptized, whenever he goes down in that water and he comes 
back up. He will be walking back into the heart of Israel to, to begin his, his public ministry here on earth. And I think we all know what that ministry among us looked like. I think we all know that it wasn't a cakewalk. As he comes up out of that water and goes out, he immediately goes into the wilderness where he is tempted. After that, he'll go back to his hometown and he'll be rejected. They'll threaten to throw him off a cliff. He will get followed around by leaders who are just waiting for him to mess up. He'll be misunderstood and misrepresented. He'll be accused of being Satan. He will be betrayed by someone as close as a brother. He'll be denied uh, by by someone who was a part of his inner circle, he will be condemned and he will be, um, he will be beaten and he will be crucified to suffer the most excruciating of all punishments. But what happens in that moment there at the Jordan is going to prepare him and sustain him and empower him and embolden him to face all of that before he has even taken a single step in that direction. Matthew says this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. There at the Jordan, as Jesus stands on the very edge of his ministry, he is given this, this tangible reminder. He is given this experience with his senses to remind him of something that has always been true and that will always be true. And that truth is this. He will not and does not take a single step alone. It is this rare moment in scripture where we get to see the Trinity in action, right? This rare moment where we get to see the three persons of the Trinity interacting in this loving relationship. Jesus actually sees the Holy Spirit being with him, coming up on him. And he's reminded that the Father is with him as he hears his voice from heaven. And I want you to listen today to what the Father says to him. As Jesus is standing on the very edge of his ministry, about to accomplish his mission he's been sent here to, to fulfill here on earth, God the Father does not quiz him on theology. God the Father doesn't go over the game plan one more time, telling him exactly where he needs to be and what he needs to do when. God the Father, he doesn't go over his expectations and give him a list of consequences if Jesus doesn't follow through. No, as Jesus stands there in the Jordan about to begin his ministry, as he's about to make this big transition in his life, listen again to what Matthew says. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. You know, some of us go our entire lives waiting to hear words like those. Some of us live our entire lives trying to figure out like who we are and trying to figure out how we can have someone else be pleased with us. We work and we struggle and we try to, to establish our identity and we push and we perform trying to, to prove that we have this value so that we can somehow earn and be worthy of others' love for us. 
And, and there's no one that that's more, no, more true of than God himself. Like when we look at the father, we want to please him. And we try to, to again, work and struggle and, and push and perform. But I want you to notice something that is vitally important here in the story. When Jesus is standing there in the Jordan, when God speaks these words, you are my son whom I love. I am well pleased with you. Guess what? Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Jesus has not performed one miracle. Jesus has not taught one lesson. Jesus has not called one person to be his disciple. But still, as Jesus stands here in this river, in this place of transition, God reminds him who he already and always is. He says, you are my son before you do anything else. (laughs) You are my child. And he makes it clear that he is pleased with Jesus just for being who he is. And so I want you to hear something today, something that perhaps no one's ever said to you, though you've longed for it. Something perhaps people have said to you, but you kind of just like ignored it and said, you know, like that's nice, but it's not really true. But I hope today when I say these words that you will receive it because this is not fluff. This is not um, some platitude. It's not just words being spoken to be and to sound nice. This is God's own honest truth. You are his child. That, if you're wondering, is who you are. You are his child. And regardless of what you have done or what you ever will do, he loves you. He's crazy about you. He looks at you with the proud heart of a father. And he sees the good that he placed in you even when no one else does. Jesus was assured of that when he stood there in the Jordan. And it is that loving acceptance, that that loving adoration, this loving relationship he shares with God the Father and the Holy Spirit that, that is above everything else in his life. It's what it's going to drive all that he does. No matter what it is that he has to face, right, along the way, because he has received this love and affection from the Father, he is able to go from standing in that living water to actually becoming the living water for all of us who meets our deepest thirsts for belonging and that makes us flourish like nothing and no one else can. Again, it's that relationship that drives Jesus. And so it makes me wonder, like, what would our lives look like if that became the thing that drove us as well? You know, what if we kind of kicked fear or kicked um, shame or kicked insecurity or greed out of the driver's seat and we replaced it instead with this truth that you are God's beloved child? You know, what might break loose in our world if we really let it sink in just how radically God loves us? What would it look like if we just started living as if God was pleased with us, as if he delights in us because he does? 
Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest who spent the last 30 or 40 years of his life leading an organization called Homeboy Industries. Um, Homeboy Industries ministers to gang members in Los Angeles. They are the world's largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program that exists on our planet. And so um, he is in the business of giving people second chances, which has led him to have all kinds of very, um, very great but interesting relationships. Uh, one of those relationships is with a man named Cesar. And Cesar was a young boy that um, Gregory Boyle watched um, as a Franciscan priest um, who loves Jesus but likes to cuss a little if you want to pick up one of his books, which I would recommend. They're very good. Um, he had watched um, Cesar grow up. He'd watched him fall into that all-too-familiar pattern of joining the gang and then having to go to prison. But whenever Cesar got out of prison and he needed help, guess who he called first? He called Father Boyle. He gets him on the phone. And, um, and, and of course, uh, Father Boyle is ready to help him. Um, and he picks him up, and what he needs is clothes. So they go to a store, which is a very entertaining experience because um, evidently Cesar is quite large in stature. And uh, Father Boyle says that he seems to have lost his volume knob. And so he's very loud and boisterous, and they go into the store, and they attract all kinds of attention. They eventually get their clothes, and Father Boyle drops him back off at home. But then, in the middle of the night, at 3 a.m., Father Boyle's phone rings. And he picks it up, and he said that Cesar says what every homie says when he call, they call and wake you up in the middle of the night. He said, did I wake you? <laughs> uh, yes, but... You see, Cesar, he had this burning question, one that couldn't wait till morning. And so he said to him, he said, I got to ask you a question. You know how I've always seen you as my father, how I've seen you that way ever since I was a little kid. And then Cesar, he, he kind of paused and his voice started to, to quiver and to crumble as he forced out this next question after saying, like, you've always been a father to me. I've always seen you that way. He said, but have I... Have I been your son? Father Boyle, without hesitation, said, well, heck yeah. And that's the edited version, if you want to imagine what he said. To which Cesar finally, like, <sighs> exhaled. And he said, I thought so. And he began to sob, and he said, then I will be your son. And you will be my father, and nothing will separate us, right? Right? And Father Boyle said, that's right. In his book, Tattoos on the Heart, this is what Father Boyle says about that encounter. He says, in this early morning call, Cesar did not discover he has a father. He discovered that he is a son worth having. The voice broke through the clouds of his terror and the crippling mess of his own history, and he felt himself beloved. God, wonderfully pleased in him, is where God wanted Cesar to reside. My prayer for each and every one of us today is that this would be a Jordan River moment for us, a key moment, a time of transition in our lives, a turning point that allows new life to flow into us as we hear God's voice breaking through the clouds of our hearts and assuring us that you are a child worth having. 
May the world forever be changed because we went from this place certain and confident that we are God's beloved children. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so grateful that you are a God who seeks us out, a God who left the glory of heaven to come and make your home here among us, that you have walked where we walked, that you breathed the air that we did, that you faced the same challenges, and that you have shown us that it's possible to persevere because like you, we are never, ever alone. In your baptism, you rose to, to walk into the messiness of this world so that you could bring order, so that you could bring rest, so that you could bring peace. And so, Jesus, I pray that we would experience you walking into the messes of our lives today and doing the same thing, giving us peace, giving us assurance, giving us direction. We pray, God, that as we embrace this truth of who we are, that we are not just one person on the planet having to figure it out all by ourselves, but that we are your beloved child, that we have an identity and that we have a purpose. And that purpose above all else is to be loved by you so that we can love others. May we claim that today. May we walk from this place in confidence that that is who we are and what we're about. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who has shown us the way. Amen.